The scripture today is Job uh, 36, 1 through 15. And Elihu continued and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you, for I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne he sets them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, Then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. The word of the Lord. So we are almost done with Job couple more weeks in this book. We've been moving our way through some of the themes of Job and where we see Jesus in Job. I hope it's been a good ride. Um, need uh, need some help. Josh, Laser, would you come, come help me for a minute? I'm trying to use a few analogies to help with the uh, some of these themes in Job, and we looked at... You can step up here with me. So we, we looked at um, the... One size doesn't fit all theology of the hospital gown. We've looked at losing a car in the parking lot and how sometimes exactly where you think something is and you think you're right and you're wrong. We're looking at the way the comforters, Job's friends, have missed the mark. And this morning, what I want to look at, I want to use this analogy of this, you know, magnets kind of stick together normally, right? So if we want to stick magnets together. So what I want to do is I want you to put the two blue magnets together, all right, and just kind of let stick the one blue and the other blue, just kind of push them together. No, no, the blue side. So can you put the blue side together? Why not? They're the same what? They're the same thing. They're not, they're not complementary, are they? I love, I always love this. Y'all love magnets as a kid. I could play, I could play with this for hours and kind of put it along and drag it through. So, Josh, what do you what do you think we have to do to get them to stick? Right? Very good. All right, you passed your science class. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, so what do I want you to remember about this? All right. Why? Because what we have here is we have a righteous man, Job. This is Job, magnetic Job, and he's suffering, and he's suffering terribly. He's had awful things happen to him. And here we have a God who is supposed to be powerful and just. And the comforters are saying both can't be true. Something isn't 
together here and working, their answer is that Job is wicked and that he's got some hidden sin. So if he'll just confess it, everything will fit together. Job, on the other hand, says God can't be just because I see what's happening to me and I'm a good man. As a matter of fact, he goes so far as to say, I'm perfect. I, I, I'm flawless. So he says, why don't these things work? This is one of the age-old questions we see. About, I don't know, a few decades ago, there was a book written called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. A very popular book. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote that book. And it's the Job story. He takes Job. Something terrible happened in his own life to his own child. And he tried to figure out how those things fit together. His conclusion was that God is good, but not powerful. God can't do whatever he wants to do. As a matter of fact, God is more of a deist God. He's set things into place and gone away. It can't, it can't be that a good God allows suffering. Right? We ask this. We have to ask ourselves this as humans. And so, we've come to the end of 30 chapters. I, I spared you a lot of verses of the comforters, the friends, making the exact same argument of this over and over and over. Job, somewhere there's a hidden sin. Somewhere, Job, you're doing it. And Job says, no, 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 I'm right, I'm right. As a matter of fact, at the end of this whole back and forth between the two of them in chapter 31, the final, Job's final appeal, he says about why he's uh, someone who's walked rightly before God. He says in verse 1 of Job 31, I've even made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He says, I'm so righteous, I've made a promise with my eyes. Probably a good thing for all of us to do, right? To what we look at, to say, I'm not doing that. And he says later on, I worship the Creator, not the created. I don't have my mind on on the things of this earth. I, I truly am walking with God. And so you'd think at this point, the arguments have been done, and you'd think, okay, well now it's time for God to step in and kind of figure out this is where it is, and you'd be totally wrong because we get a whole new voice. We get this guy named Elihu, and it's an, it's an puzzling character because we've had really no introduction to him, and once he speaks for these five chapters, God doesn't reference him. He talks about the other comforters, but this this guy speaks... And he's clearly, in the way we've introduced to him, he's been listening to this back and forth that's been going on. If you've got your Bible, turn to Job 32, and we'll, we'll just find out what we do know about this guy, Elihu, which means he is God. That's what his name means. You'll find, if you read commentaries, they're not quite sure what to do with him either. Some people think he's really another just wicked comforter. Some people don't. It's, it's, it's sort of puzzling. People, this is one of these places where people, Bible scholars, can't even come to a conclusion that they all agree with. So what we see is, in verse 32, these three men, those three comforters, 
had ceased to answer Job because, at least in their mind, he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Remember, their theology would not allow them to see anything except their answer, and they were wrong. Be careful. What you may think you're right in today, you may figure out. Be be humble enough to know that God's bigger. God's box may blow your box apart. Job's, um, they were wrong. Now, verse 4, Elihu had waited to speak because they were older than he. So we know he's a younger person. We don't know how much younger, but he is younger. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And then he begins five chapters. And interestingly enough, he he doesn't really speak much to these three comforters. He speaks about the greatness of God, and he speaks to Job. And I think that's because Job was dealing with God. The three comforters were dealing with their principles and their doctrines, but never with God. And so because Elihu is speaking to one who's dealing with God, he dismisses those who deal with things. You're going to find in your life people who deal with the philosophical or doctrinal things. But you know what? It's usually a waste of our time. We need to deal with those who deal with God. And Elihu does that, and we're not going to read five chapters. I want to bring out a couple of things that I, I learned from this. First thing I want to say is, because he's younger, I don't know how young he is, but he, was defer- he had deference toward his elders, and that was a good thing, I think. But can I just say, as one who's moving more to the elder part than the lesser part, is that growing old does not assure you of being wise, okay? Nor does being young assure you of not being wise. Wisdom is found in God's Word and in God's Spirit. And to the extent Elihu had that, he could be wise as whatever age he was and is younger. In Job 33, he rebukes Job. Job 33, verse 8, begins what I think is sort of a pivotal part of this, of what where Elihu sees that Job erred in this. And he says this, Surely you've spoken in my ears, that is, I've heard you speak. I've heard the sound of your words. You say, I'm pure without sin. I'm clean. There's no iniquity in me. He's repeating back words you find earlier in Job. Behold, Job says, he finds occasions, God finds occasions against me. He counts me as an enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and he watches all my paths. Elihu speaks to the fact that Job's overreached. And I I have some sympathy. Job, in the midst of his life being decimated, I mean, trying to give him some grace, but Elihu is able to speak the truth to him and say, you've overstepped. You're not without sin, Job. You may be a righteous man, but you're not without sin. And God is not your enemy, though it feels that way. And so, as Elihu 
I feel, tries to bring a more accurate read and picture, he offers this insight which the three friends couldn't in 30 chapters. And he says this. This is a, a new way that this magnet can fit because, again, the way they were attacking it, it never worked. And he said, on the opposite side of a suffering man, there's a God for whom suffering has purpose. Now, is it going to be absolutely clear the second you want it what that purpose is? No. But he says if you'll turn it around and look, it'll actually bring you to God rather than drive you away from God. Suffering has the opportunity to do both. It can drive you away or it can bring you to and I don't know what your suffering looks like. I don't know what you're going through and what you're facing. But I can tell you, if, if, if you're not, you will. There'll be things in your life that you're going to go, what? How can there be a good and loving God and this situation or circumstance? So here is what Elihu says. Pick up with me, please, in verse 14 of chapter 33, which we stopped. I'll start with 12. Behold, in this, Job, you are not right. I will answer you. God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's word? God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men and they slumber on their beds, and this is before, remember, the written word that we have here wouldn't have almost certainly been available. At, so the way God would have spoken to them would have been at that time through dreams and visions, much more so. We're blessed to have his written words. He can also speak to us in, in these visions as well, but we have his written word that they wouldn't have. So read this as God's word coming to you. And in verse 16, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that what? That he may turn man aside from his deed, conceal pride from a man, keep back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. What does that mean? It means there's something worse than suffering in this life. And that is living a life now and forever apart from God. That's the pit. So you may think to yourself, well, if there can't be a God and allow X, Y, or Z to occur, and he says, maybe the pain and the suffering is to get our attention so that a lifetime apart from God isn't our destiny. Now that's some heavy meat. <laughs> because when you're in the midst of it, when your health or your child or your circumstances are really taking a battering, it takes a lot of courage and perspective to look a little bit from heaven's perspective and say, God, do you possibly have a purpose in this that I can't see right now? Because it says, remember, once, twice, God speaks, but man doesn't perceive it. And Joseph sitting in the middle of a prison, I'm sure it wasn't that easy for him to say, oh God, this is great, loving the Egyptian prison life. But could he say, oh God, would you have a purpose in this? Seven years is not a short time to spend in prison. 
as the lion's mouths are opening to eat up Daniel. So you say, God, would you, would you have a purpose in this for me? Could you keep the, could you keep it away a little bit? Hey, that fire is getting seven times hotter. God, do you have a purpose in this? Uh, Shadrach, do you think God might have a purpose for us because we're about to get toasted? See, when we're in the midst of situations, it takes some courage to say, God, do you have a purpose that when it's my health or my child or my circumstance or my situation, rather than saying, God, you can't be there, you can't be real because suffering can't concur with a just and powerful God. Remember the magnets. And God says, no, he may have a purpose in this that we yet can't see. And so before God is going to start speaking in the 38th chapter to Job, Elihu tries to bring in a whole different perspective in this. Let's look at a couple other verses that would speak to this. In the same chapter, Job 33, verse 30, start with 29. Behold, God does these things twice, three times with a man. Why? To bring his soul back from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. That there's some redemption in suffering, and I know, I don't make light of this, I know it can be really hard. We've all experienced things, and some of y'all have experienced things far worse than I. But the Bible's picture to us, the Bible's Word to us is that don't sell God short of being ultimately merciful. We have in Jesus Christ, again, explaining and unpacking so much for us. Let's look for just a minute at what the New Testament might say. Give you one more verse from the Old, just to shed a little light, angled light on some of this. Psalm 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted because then I learned about your ways. Here from the New Testament, a couple of verses. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you can rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable, is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Job himself says earlier on, I believe it's the 23rd chapter, he says, Lord, I know you're going to try me and you're going to test me, but at the end I'll be refined like gold. I think that's 23.10. I won't stake my life on it, but I think that's right. Hebrews 12.10 says this, Our Father disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Boy, that is true. Later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You know, I, I don't discipline my neighbor's child, right? I may yell at him. I... I feel like, remember Dennis the Menace, Mr. Wilson next door? I feel as I'm getting older, sometimes I'm more like Mr. Wilson. Get off my lawn! But I don't discipline the neighbor's child. I shoo them away. Not my own. My own children have suffered under my hand, 
right? Why is that, right? Because discipline, you love your children enough, right? And I know this is a hard word, and I know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib at all, but Jesus loves us enough to bring us to himself, even if it means bringing things into our life that we'd rather not have. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we didn't want to live. Sound Job-like to me? It's Paul. Why? We felt we had received the sentence of death, but really it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Because He raises the dead. See what he says? I felt like I should just be dead. And then I remembered, oh yeah, death isn't the end. Speaking back to that book that was popular a few years ago about when bad things happen to good people, the Bible would counsel us to look at something else. It says, how about when good things happen to bad people? Because the Bible's take is that we all deserve pretty bad stuff because we violated his holiness and he says we're very quick to say hey i deserve the good stuff why am i getting bad stuff i don't hear people saying why am i getting all the good stuff when i deserve the bad stuff but you see the great exchange of the gospel is that jesus deserved nothing but god's praise and glory and favor and he got god's abandonment so you and i would not You are a child of God because Jesus Christ abandoned his place. And he suffered the wrath and the suffering we deserved. And that's the gospel. And so we, if we say there should not be any suffering, then let's not remove Jesus from that equation. And be careful if you don't want Jesus to suffer. Because righteousness dictates The holiness of God dictates that there be just recompense for sin. And you see, the problem is sin's far worse than we think it is. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, I'm going to close with this verse because it's pretty amazing. It's way back when Job is trying to figure out what's going on, and he makes this plea. He says, Job says, Oh, if there were only someone to arbitrate between us, God. If there were someone to lay his hand on us both. Someone who would remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I could speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Do you see the gospel? Is that Job didn't have that because Jesus hadn't come. But there is an arbiter. There is one who stands between, and he laid his hand in heaven and on earth. And for those who would 
take Jesus and those who take seriously and say, I believe that, he brings together and the terror of God is no longer, the terror of death is no longer, because there was an arbiter. Job's prayer was answered. Next week, we're going to conclude either in one or two weeks. I'm not sure if I'll do it all next week or over two, but it's going to be in in two areas, and it's going to be talking about, you know, we get affliction and suffering for a lot of reasons. It's not just one reason. Job addresses this one type of suffering. But God speaks in the latter part of Job to Job about the redemption and about dealing as Job dealt with God, so God deals with Job. And we're going to look at how God comes at this, and I don't know that it will answer every question for us, but at the end of the day, we're going to find Job saying that this God who I heard about, now my eyes see. And the question for us is, is the ultimate goal of our life to be pain-free or to see God? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as you build your kingdom in us, both individually and corporately, Father, we want to see the fullness of truth. And Lord, your word honestly looks at such painful conditions that we go through. And Lord, while there's great mystery, we certainly can't deny that there's mystery here and we don't have all the answers. We don't have a God who has abandoned us and sits far away and lets it play out. Lord, as some would conclude. But we have a God who entered into our pain in the fullest possible way and allows us to write a different story because there's an arbiter between God and man. Lord, why is it that we receive the good when in myself, Lord, I I am wicked? and Lord, I just say thank You. What else can we say but thank You for sending Jesus and for making a way for us as we go through this life and we stumble through and we fall and we rise, but that you've never abandoned us, you've never left us as orphans, because for those of us who have trusted in you, we're always children. So Lord, help us to come to you in the midst of suffering, to allow that magnet to draw us to you, the God who suffered, So we see you not as an arbitrary judge, but a God who enters into the pain of our world. Build your kingdom here, Lord, not with glib answers, but with the truth of your word.